A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online. So any small business could be a driving force to create change or build an empire. We know old ideas aren't cutting it anymore. So we're calling for a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. So whatever you have in mind that will help make a different future, find everything you need to get started at GoDaddy.com. Because the future isn't decided yet. It's up to us to make it happen. Start different at GoDaddy.com. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. On episode 152 of Confessions of a Marketer, win without pitching. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. Blair Enns is in to talk about his book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. We'll get to that in a moment. In the weeks ahead, I have chats planned with Henrik Becker, Zenia Montan, Dave Woodward, Larry Ludwig, Travis Chambers, Naira Perez, Marty McDonald, Ian Preston, and Nicholas Vandenberg. There is a lot more in store as we make our way through this crazy year. We'll continue to cover the current health crisis, but we'll also stick to our knitting and help everyone become better marketers. So you can expect that kind of content to continue as well. As always, stay with us. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you've fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. Okay, on to Blair Ends. His win without pitching idea challenges agencies to buck the conventional wisdom that puts the client in the driver's seat, a scenario that makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to lead in the engagement. We had a great chat, and Blair lives in the wilds of rural British Columbia, so we get a taste of that lifestyle as well and the unique point of view on business he has from his outpost. Plus, we discuss getting by when the power goes out. Blair is a fascinating guy. Let's get to it. Blair, it's great to have you on Confessions of a Marketer. Welcome. Thank you, Mark. It's my pleasure to be here. Can you give me your background on what you're up to these days? Oh, background. <laughs> Loaded question, right? I stumbled into advertising many years ago, worked for some of the largest ad agencies in the world, and then some of the smallest design firms in the world on the account management side of the business and the new business. So I was a suit, managed accounts and did new business. In 2000, I decided I wanted to move my 
young and growing family to this tiny little village in the middle of nowhere, British Columbia. And I had to find a way to earn a living. So I launched a solo consulting practice called Win Without Pitching, which is a new business development consulting, which is code for sales, sales consulting (laughs) practice to ad agencies and design firms. In 2013, I decided I'd had enough of being a solo consultant and I started to pursue scale. So I turned Win Without Pitching into a training company, started hiring staff. We still have a small team, but the we serve a larger number of clients through various training mechanisms on the various subjects within the kind of arc of agency new business. So you go in for a day or so and train people up on the components of your book, basically? Yeah. So we do public work, two-day public workshops, and then we'll do that a few times a year in various locations. And then we'll do that public workshop in a private training environment. So the standard is two days, but we really have about eight days of training curriculum. So the two days kind of is enough to get people started. And for some people, that's enough. That's enough training. But usually after a year or two, people come back for the next level. And the other question I have is about, you said you were a suit. Do people wear suits anymore in, in the agency environment? Not very often. In fact, I bought my first suit in oh, almost 20 years, <laughs> about a year and a half ago. And it's nice to put on a suit from time. I wrote a book about money. My most recent book is on pricing. So I thought, well, if I write a book about money, I should probably look like money. So I went out and bought a suit, <laughs> but I didn't buy the tie. <laughs> so I still don't own a tie. Yeah. Okay. I bought a suit about a year ago because my son was getting married and I thought, well, I'd better have a suit. Yeah. But like you, I hadn't bought a a real suit since like 1998. Yeah. It had been a while. I joke that when I moved to the woods, as I affectionately title or refer to the little village I live in, 20 years ago, I had a Hugo Boss bonfire. I, (laughs) I didn't really, I just gave it all away. Right. <laughs> I found, you know, a lot of my old suits, which I loved, I looked at and they had moth holes in them. So, so that's one way of getting rid of them. Yeah. Moth holes and too baggy. Insects. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what's your internet like in that small little village in uh, British Columbia? At home, I have high speed internet, Mark. It's six megabits per second on the download and one on the upload. Yeah. <laughs> That's blazing fast in 1998. When I bought a suit in 1998, (laughs) I would have killed for that speed. It's a high speed internet compared to dial up. Right. In my studio here, I have a hundred megabits per second both ways. And like some people think, well, that's crazy fast. So we're a little bit behind the times here. It's tricky. In fact, there's a small chance that I could lose my internet connection in the middle of this recording. But we won't worry about that. We'll, no. We'll just redial up and we'll connect it all and make it sound seamless in editing. So last week I was, was it this recording? No, it wasn't this where we had it scheduled. I think it was with somebody Yeah, we else. were going to do it last yeah. week and I, I, was, I was having my oil tank replaced and 
uh, it was rather noisy here, and so we had to put it off. But then you said, well, you had you had some issue with the recording last week. The day before we were to record, I was a guest on another less important podcast than this, <laughs> and I had to cancel because all of the power in the entire village of Castle, British Columbia, was out for 12 hours, so we had no power at all. Oh, and that's a fairly common occurrence. It happens two or three, maybe four times a year. Yeah. So do you have, I want to talk about your book and the win without pitching manifesto and all that, but do you have a generator for your house? I would imagine you'd have to. No, no. no? It's a 125 year old rambling six bedroom house that's heated entirely by one wood stove in wow. winter. So I get up in the morning as I did last week, started a fire and then I threw the coffee pots on top of the stove and then I cooked bacon and eggs for my wife and I on the stove. <laughs> Sounds idyllic, actually. It's, I love it when it happens. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Yeah. We lost power here and I live near Boston. We lost power for about a week. I think it was in 2011. And I've got a gas grill and I was making brownies in my cast iron skillet and lasagna and all those kinds of things out on the grill. And it was actually kind of kind of an interesting way to lead your life because your life becomes oriented around when the sun comes up and when the sun goes down. And yeah, you know, the rhythms of your life change, you know, because we artificially extend the day with, you know, light. And when there isn't any, you just have to deal with the light that comes from the sun. Yeah, you get into this more natural kind of rhythm of the day. I think a week is a long time. So we have one cell tower in town and it works. And for my house, I can barely get reception. So I've got internet on my phone from there or my laptop. And then I have an electric car with a 90 kilowatt hour battery in it. So if it's relatively fully charged, I can run all kinds of stuff off of that battery oh, pack. Right. It's essentially like a backup battery pack for the house, but it's it's not just wired in. I can't run the house off of it, but I can plug all kinds of things into it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, this has been a, an interesting seven minutes discussion about <laughs> completely wasted that will end up on the <laughs> editing room floor. <laughs> well, okay, but I, I can actually, I'm very fascinated by people like you who live in remote places and work in the you know highly contemporary modern world. It's a fascinating dichotomy. Well, I and I, th I think it's a great segue, too, because I'm convinced I could not do what I do if I did not live where I live. Like my mm. uh, my approach to agency, new business development, and maybe even sales in general is kind of contrarian. I often say when I go to New York, and I've been there a couple of times in the last six months, When I, I love New York, but I have to get out of there after a couple of days because I start to believe what everybody says and what they say at the agency level and at the client level is you can't really win without pitching. And my my that's the name of my book and my business. Yeah. My whole business is built around this idea that you can indeed win new business without having to give your highest value product away for free. But if I if I lived in the epicenter of advertising, I would actually start to believe what it is that they say. And so I'm a low consumer of media generally, but of media in the, in the goings on in the ad agency and agency client relationship space. I don't read ad age. I don't read brand week. I don't read any of those publications almost ever. I don't think you're missing much. 
No, the important stuff finds me. People will send me links to articles. So I'll read something from time to time. But I find if I if I were immersed in that world, I couldn't have the point of view on it that I have. And my point of view is everybody is effing crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. So let's talk about your book, The Win Without Pitching Manifesto. And this book was brought to my attention by a guest I had on a while back, the great David C. Baker. Yeah, I just got off the phone with David before this call. And he was a great guest, and I really enjoyed getting to know him. Obviously, I'm coming to your book kind of late because it came out about 10 years ago, but I made sure I paid attention to it because we all end up being in the position of having to pitch at some point. And I, I was interested in, in your point of view. And I want to start off talking about specialization. You say that specializing is a key to success, but most people in agencies tend to generalize. I know when I started my own little marketing operation now about a decade ago, I thought I could do a lot of different things. But what I found out was specializing in ghostwriting and writing in the marketing arena was where I could actually make a dent. So why is specialization so important? Well, I think it's a uh... You can look to any other part of life or the world, like the sciences, et cetera, and you can see that it's there are huge advantages in being a specialist. Not that there are no advantages in being a generalist. Yeah. But just a, a little demonstration I like to do, and well, I know this is an audio medium, but imagine that I'm holding a bottle of beer and the, the contents of the bottle represents the total capacity and resources of your firm. And then to realize the benefits of the of that bottle, you have to uncap it and you have to pour it into a vessel. And the vessel is the positioning or the fundamental business strategy of your firm, like what it is that you're going to do and who you're going to do it for. Now, I can pour that beer into a casserole dish and you can see that your expertise spreads wide, but it's not very deep. And then I can pull out a second bottle of beer and I can pour that into a Pilsner glass and place it next to the casserole dish. And you can see that the same capacity, same kind of like capacity for expertise or problem solving, not nearly as broad. So it's not nearly as relevant to as, as many people or prospective clients, but look at the difference in depth. It's exponential. It's just like, mm -hmm. it's a massive difference. And that example illustrates why, unless you are a super intelligent person running a firm full of super intelligent people, extraordinarily intelligent. <clears throat> Unless that's you, then if you want to get ahead, you need to narrow your focus so that you can deepen your expertise. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, I think in an ad agency creative firm or probably any professional firm for that matter, the only real differentiator, the only meaningful differentiator is the depth of your expertise, is your ability to solve the client's problem. And it's it's their perception of your ability to solve their problem or capitalize on their opportunity with a high likelihood of a, high, a positive outcome. So you can be a generalist, you can be all things to all people, but the understanding when we hire a generalist is they spend a lot of time doing a lot of different things 
And if my business is on the line or the stakes are otherwise high, I want a specialist. I want somebody who's going to show up, see the problem and immediately spot the patterns and immediately know what to do and immediately begin doing something that they've done before where they've worked the kinks out. And the outcome I want is uh, I want a high degree of certainty about a high quality outcome. And that's why I will hire an expert versus a generalist when the chips are down. Yeah. It's like if you've got some problem in your house, say it's an electrical problem, you don't hire a handyman, you hire an electrician, right? Someone who knows that not necessarily knows everything about your house. I'll give you a better example. So I already told you I live in this remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere. For many years, we had one doctor, an old country doctor, and his name was, I swear to God, it was Doc Olson. <laughs> of course it was. <laughs> we now have four doctors, but for years, Doc Olson was the only medical practitioner in this village, and he did everything. So I went to see him once because I had a kidney stone problem. And as I went for my exam, I said, I, by the way, I have three kids. I also need a vasectomy. <laughs> and he said, I could do that. I could do that. <laughs> he said, I, I used to do vasectomies. And then he said, no, nah, I probably shouldn't. And then he was thinking about it. He went, yeah, I could do it. And I said, no, no, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll take the referral to a urologist. So even though he'd been around for years, and he had done all of this work and he was this polymath as, as far as, a, you know, that's what you get for a general practitioner. Sure. They have this capability to do everything to a certain quality. But when, you know, somebody's holding something very dear to you in their hands, you want to make sure they don't slip up and I don't want to get too graphic here. But yeah, you, yeah. Well, you want yeah. someone who does this, you know, hundreds of times a year rather than once every blue moon, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, th I think that goes with so many things in business that, yeah, you could go to, you know, XYZ agency and get something, but are they expert in it? And that's really what you mean is that you want to go to the agency that specializes in the problem you have. Yeah, you as the client want to look at them and go, you want to know that, okay, you've done this before, you do it all the time, you have a bulletproof way of doing this, you're not likely to screw this up. That's what you as a client want, especially as you get closer to buying early on, just the psychology of buying early on when you're considering solving your problem, you're considering hiring a creative or marketing firm to help you. You're actually quite interested in the more radical firms and people who are doing things differently because you're overweighting the benefits of change and you're underweighting the cost or the consequences of failure. But as you get closer to buying, that switches. You now underweight the benefits of change and you overweight in your mind the costs or the consequences of failure. And that's that line, nobody ever got fired for hiring IBM. That kind of speaks to that change in the weighting of what we value through the buying cycle. Yeah. You also say that being selective is important. And I've worked with a number of agencies as kind of a subcontractor over the last 10 years, small agencies. Also seen this from the outside, from the other side, where agencies like that tend to pursue every opportunity that comes in over the transom, no matter what it is. And you think that agencies should be selective. So how does that work for an agency trying to build its client roster. 
Yeah, and these two things are related, the need to specialize and the need to be selective. And as you've pointed out, both of these things are difficult, tend to be more difficult for a creative firm than an other business. And there's a reason, there's a very good reason for it. You think about what it means to be creative. Creativity is not the ability to write or draw. Creativity is the ability to see. It's the ability to bring a novel perspective to a problem. So if you are a creative person running a firm full of creative people, your superpower as a person and as an organization is to solve the problem that you have not previously solved. Therefore, you are drawn as an individual, you are drawn to these problems that you've never solved before. So the idea of narrowing your focus so that you can benefit from pattern matching, my friend David Baker talks about that a lot, that's a benefit of expertise is you spot the patterns. Yeah. The idea of narrowing your focus and, and building a business that doesn't allow you to solve all these cool, really interesting problems for all these cool, really interesting clients, it is terrifying to a creative mindset. But if you want to benefit from pattern matching, if you want to build deep expertise, you need to limit your field of vision and focus on a smaller number of things so that you can see the patterns so repeated observation, and they can work the kinks out of the application, repeated execution. So those two things of narrowing your focus, being a specialist, and then being selective go hand in hand, and they're both hard for a creative person because creative people are drawn to variety. Yeah, and drawn to opportunity too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you just, you know, enough creative people, you just imagine like, if you're a marketer, you call your agency into the room to have a meeting, whether it's somebody you're working with now or you're thinking of hiring and you put the problem or the opportunity in front of them, you see how excited they get about it. I mean, they live for this. It's like, here's my chance to, it's not just solve the problem, what they really value and what enough clients don't understand is that what the agency and any creative person really values is the freedom to think about the problem differently. So from an agency point of view, one of the worst things a client can do is brief the agency at the point where you're fully self-diagnosed and self-prescribed. Here's our problem. Here's the solution we want you to spec out and price the solution. That is, for somebody whose superpower is seeing the challenge differently than anybody else, that is really restricting in a way that's just not beneficial to anybody. Yeah. So let's talk about money. And most agency client meetings I've been on, whether I'm sitting on either side of the table, tend to steer clear of it early on. You advocate tackling it quickly. Why is that? Because stress is caused by the things you don't do. Mm-hmm. Money conversations are stressful because we avoid them. So what I advocate and what we train is go headlong into money conversations as soon as possible. Start talking about money early and often. Now, there's some nuance around that, the science of anchoring, et cetera, who speaks first. But generally speaking, you want to have the money conversations early. It's often the elephant in the room, isn't it? You've been there where yeah. nobody yeah. mentions it. You're waiting. You talk conceptually about things, and often you hear, 
let's not worry about what this could cost. We can talk about that later, <laughs> you know, but everybody in the back of their head is thinking, what the hell is this going to cost? You know, how much is this going to cost me or how much am I going to be able to charge for this? Yeah. You know, it's hanging over the meeting. So I guess popping that bubble and just getting it out right away makes sense because it immediately qualifies the prospect, right? If they say, whoa, that's too much or, you know, it at least steers the conversation in the right direction. Yeah. And early on, you'll find yourself often talking about money even before you fully understand the problem or are able to scope it from the agency point of view. And that's okay. It needs to be okay. Money can't be this taboo. It has to be this thing. We recognize that we on the agency side, we're getting paid money to help the client like mitigate some risk or capitalize on some opportunity. And the client needs to understand that we're not doing this for love. We're doing it for profit, at least in part. And we have an obligation to our employees, our shareholders, our families, et cetera, to generate a profit, to prove to ourselves in the world that we deserve to exist. And if we don't generate a profit, we don't meet that burden of proof. So money is important and we need to talk about it. So the win without pitching rule of money is those who don't talk about it, don't make it. Yeah. That's a pretty clear rule. <laughs> and it's just, it's just like in sales. If you don't ask for the sale, you won't get it. Yeah. So if you don't talk about money, there won't be any money at the end of the meeting. Exactly. So let's talk about pricing levels. I loved this part of your book because you advocate charging more, which is definitely a concept I can get behind. But how can agencies you know, price themselves appropriately? My most recent book that came out in January of 2018 is on pricing. It's called Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. So I've been just living and breathing pricing for the last five years. Mm -hmm. The Win Without Pitching Manifesto came out 10 years ago, I think, as you pointed out. And I'll interview you about maybe the, about the pricing book 10 years from now so that we can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So how can you charge more? So just a few basic principles and rules that you can take away, like you could take away from this podcast and start charging more. Number one, and the first rule of pricing creativity, I have six rules in the book, price the client, not the job, not the service, price the client. And so what that means is you want to leverage what's known as price discrimination, which sounds like a bad thing, but it isn't. It's actually responsible for like discounts for seniors and students, et cetera. But it's also known as willingness to pay. Some clients are willing to pay more for the exact same thing that other clients would pay for, and your job is to let them. So number one, you price the client, not the job, not the service. What that means is if a client or prospective client comes to you and says, what do you charge for X? You don't have an answer because it depends on what the value of X is to them. Number two, I'll give you just three takeaways here that you can combine to, to charge more money. Number two, always offer options. So when you put a proposal forward to a client, instead of one, here's the solution and here's the price, there's a lot of science behind this, there's a lot of reasons behind this, but just the simple version is put forward three options. Here are three different ways we can work together, three different buckets of deliverables you could buy from us, or even you could buy inputs or outputs or outcomes. There are a lot of different ways you can slice and, slice and dice the three options but have just three different bundles that the client might choose from. Now there's some nuance and some work to do to decide what goes into those bundles. But if you don't put forward options to the client, then you are making 
all kinds of guesses and you're almost certainly guessing wrong about what the client really values, about how much risk they want to take on in the relationship and how much risk they want you to make go away and all kinds of other variables. So put forward three options. Three is better than two for reasons I won't get into here. There's an, a principle known as extremeness aversion that says people will retreat to the middle. So have the lowest price be the client's stated budget, then have something a bit higher and then something higher still. The third rule, anchor high. What that means is when you deliver your three option proposals, start with the most expensive one. And if there's some sticker shock, that's okay because the price of the anchor option, the job of that is to just frame the other two options so they don't look so expensive. So three different things, price the client, not the job, not the service. And, and you know what? Sometimes that means the price needs to go down, right? And number two, offer options. Number three, start with the most expensive one. That's it. Do those three things. You'll make more money. Yeah, sounds great. So to wrap up, I want to read the quote at the beginning of your book from Mark Twain. It goes like this. Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. And for me, at least, this reflects a concept we talked about recently with the former CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, Kevin Roberts, zig when everyone else is zagging. Why did you choose this quote and why is it important for everyone to remember? I don't remember the passages that kept coming to me, but Mark Twain, and I say this in the acknowledgments of the book that Mark Twain two or three times raised himself from the dead to warn me about not publishing the book before it was ready. So yeah. I really had Mark Twain on the mind. I wouldn't say I'm a natural contrarian. I probably am, and I'm not proud of it. And a friend of mine said, 90% of the world, it's they're conventional thinkers. Nine and a half percent of the world are contrarians. And there's about 0.5 of a percent of the population of the world that are truly original thinkers. Yeah, I would like to be in that truly original thinker category. I'm probably not. I think Peter Thiel's an original thinker and a couple of others. Like there's a small number of people I can point to these days where I think those are original thinkers. They are not regurgitating other people's thoughts. Right. And I'm just so struck by how if everybody's doing it, it's probably wrong. Of course, that's not universally true. But when I look at the pitch in the agency world, almost everybody except the young and really naive on the agency side would say, yeah, this isn't a really good way to hire a firm like ours. Even a bunch of people on the client side would say, yeah, it's not a really good way to hire an agency. So when they hear the name of the book or the business, Win Without Pitching, they often hear, oh yeah, that's kind of an appealing idea, but it's a nice idea in theory only. It can't really be done. Right. And it's just, that's the, these conventions, most categories have these conventions that, you know, if you just stop and ask, like, where did this come from? Why does it persist? You'll, you often come up with these really weird answers. And I just think it's just a bit of a motto. If everybody's doing it, it's probably wrong. Or at least we should stop and ask ourselves, do we know why we do it this way? It's just the way it's always been done. It's not a, right. it's not a valid response to anything. But in the agency business, I think it really is. It's just the way it's always been done. 
And, you know, things like the blue ocean strategy and things like that, that are kind of taught in business schools, tell you to zig when everyone else is zagging. And yet it's a really hard thing to, to actually do in real life. I haven't checked the stock market today, but we're recording this if it's okay to say this, we're recording, yeah. recording this during the height of the coronavirus kind of panic and the markets crashing. And I was saying to my, one of my kids asked the other day, are we going to be okay? Talking about the business. We had to cancel our biggest event. I said, yeah, we're going to be okay. And if, if I don't make money out of this, and I don't mean to sound so mercenary, I'll explain it in a second. If I don't make money out of this, I'm a poor entrepreneur. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is there's just at times of volatility, if you can stay calm then you can often profit. Now we all know that like if we're invested in the market at all, we all know that you buy low and sell high. Yeah. The market's dropping like a stone. And I'll bet you people who are sitting on cash, retail investors, they're not buying. And they're not buying because that rational idea that you buy low and sell high makes sense during rational times. But as soon as people get emotional, it goes out the window. So there's this incredible, some people are complaining about the market. There's an incredible opportunity for people who aren't in the market to get in the market. And most people are going to pass or miss this opportunity because they're not thinking rationally. Yeah. You know, in the heat of the moment, no matter what is going on, whether you're, you know, trying to land a big account or you're watching the stock market dive, it can change one's behavior. And it's too bad that happens, but it's definitely a fact of life that people behave under stress differently than they would if they were not under stress. I see that all the time. I can teach people what to do in certain situations how to behave in the sale. And then they report back and say, well, I didn't do that thing that I know I should have done because of X. And X is some sort of external condition. We're really slow in the shop right now, or it's a tough time economically, or this is a really big client. And none of these are reasons to not do what you should do, but they come up all of the time. And, you know, I just think I'm 53 now. I feel like I've seen everything two or three times, right? And I think when I think of my younger clients who have reasons not to do what I would consider to be the right thing and when I could get them to agree is the right thing in a calm, rational moment, they have this moment of panic and then all of the training, all of the preparation goes out the window. And I think, yeah. oh, that's youth. You just, we'll do this a few more times and you'll see the right thing to do during a rational time is the right thing to do during an irrational time. Yeah. There's a great movie from uh, almost 30 years ago called Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks. And in it, I think he may be in the ad business. I can't remember exactly. But in it, he is rehearsing with his wife a job interview where he thinks he's going to get a job offer. And he says, I don't want to accept less than $49,000 a year, whatever it was. So he says to her, so offer me $45,000. And she says, we're prepared to offer you $45,000. And he says, nope, sorry, can't take it. So they do this, you know, over several minutes. And then the next scene is him in with the guy offering him the job. And he says something like, we're prepared to offer you $43,000. And he says, that's great. And shakes the guy and then <laughs> wonders, what the hell did I just do? Yeah, that's perfect. That's, you know, someone under stress 
making the wrong decision. Yeah. <laughs> Not unusual, though, I guess, in this world. And you attribute your buckling in that situation to external factors. Yeah. But it's always internal. It's always just yeah. your state of mind, your state of grace and calmness. That's all it ever is. Yeah. yeah. Well, Blair, this has been fascinating learning about the win without pitching manifesto and other things about life in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I really had such a great time. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Mark. It's been my pleasure. That was fun. All right. Next time, Henrik Becker on SaaS and B2B marketing. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. Stay healthy and see you next time. You've never tried to eyeball six feet as often as you do now. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, and you've stayed within the walls of your apartment for more hours than you care to add up. But unless you live in a smoke-free building, you're not exactly home free. Secondhand smoke drifting through the cracks in walls or sink drains carries toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. And right now, lung health is key. Go to tobaccofreeca.com to learn how to stay safe.